All right, our young folks can be dismissed to Children's Church. Everybody else, if you'd turn to John chapter 11, please. John chapter 11. One of the things that definitely is true, if our heart is filled with thanksgiving, there won't be so much of the murmuring and complaining and the fussing and the whining, because um, both things can't fit there at the same time. And uh, so the idea of what uh, Pete suggested with the idea of thanks living, every day should be a, d- a day where we give thanks to God for what he's done for us and what he means to us. And um, we're going to see in this passage today, as we, as we wrap up chapter 11 and, and talk about reactions to Lazarus's resurrection, um, we're going to see someone who was extremely, extremely thankful for what took place. And um, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute or two. We're going to be in John chapter 11. Let's uh, have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. We do thank you for our, our nation. We thank you for the freedoms that we currently have to be able to assemble together and share your word. Father, we pray as we have this time together that you would just kind of speak to our hearts and just calm our spirits, help us to see clearly the truth that you have for us this morning, and may God's word speak to our hearts, and Father, may our hearts be filled with thanksgiving for all that you have done for us, and as we count our blessings instead of the worries and concerns and cares that sometimes seem to overwhelm us. We pray for your guidance and direction, Lord, throughout this message, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've been talking about the life of Christ. We've talked about being a disciple. And again, Jesus set the bar really pretty high as far as this disciple stuff is concerned. He said you need to be willing to deny yourself. You need to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. Sometimes you may have to just put family aside or your own desires aside and forsake all. Count the cost. It's not an easy thing to do. He differentiates uh, between the disciples and the Pharisees. He said, they are not my disciples. Uh, they are false shepherds. They're hirelings. They're self-righteous. They're blind. And uh, they're interested in the praise of men. We're going to again see them in our overall picture uh, this morning as well. He says they're not focused on Scripture or the truth. One, you know, it's, they're not focused on the Scripture or the truth of the Scriptures. They're focused on their own physical well-being and their wealth. And he actually calls the Pharisees covetous. And he said, you cannot serve God and money. You can't do, have it both ways. You can't be interested in the wealth and serve God at the same time. And again, this passage where you can't do both. Again, I want you to keep that in your mind as we get uh, closer to the end of uh, what we're going to share this morning. Jesus then tells the Pharisees the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it is not to, uh, it's considered not a parable. It's considered a real story. But at the same time, it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and he's just finished talking to the Pharisees about covetousness and wealth and the things that they possess. So it could be the story of the Pharisee versus the lame man, or the Pharisee versus the poor man, uh, because they looked down upon them, and they thought they were not even worthy to be in the temple and not worthy to worship, and they thought of themselves as better than, and uh, just because they had things in this life. And so literally, even though Jesus is talking about the rich man and Lazarus, it really was the Pharisees versus the poor man. And he put in their minds the possibility that the wealthy Pharisees might actually end up in hell, something that they probably never thought of, that this was not even a possibility. We're we're assured 
the kingdom of God because we are God's children. We are descendants of Abraham. We're the Jews, and, and so we're assured a place, plus the fact that uh, we are, uh, you know, we've uh, devoted ourselves to the law and obedience to the law, so we actually expect to have a high seat, a high, uh, uh, sit at one of the high tables there in the banquet feast of God's kingdom. And Jesus is trying to explain to them that, no, this is not what's going to happen. You need to actually think about the possibility. You might go to a place where no one wants to be, a place of fire, smoke, a place of fear, a place of loneliness, no hope, no rest, crying, wickedness, imprisonment, sorrow, misery, torment, darkness, no release, a place where you will spend forever. Jesus then departs from Jerusalem after talking with the Pharisees and <clears throat> only to get word sometime later that Lazarus, his dear friend, is very, very sick. The Bible says that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And again, we talked about the fact that God loves all of us. But this was like uh, different because, again, of time and distance. And we talked about those two things and, and, it, and it even makes sense on our, you know, on our human level it's easier to be friends with and love people that are close to you in proximity and people that you spend time with. And so time and distance uh, plays a role in this matter. And uh, he spent much time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and was close to them. And again, if you want a close relationship with the Lord, then you need to spend time with him and draw near to him and he will draw near to you. They hear about the sickness of Lazarus, and the disciples are fearful to return to a place so close. Bethany was only a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, and they're like, eh, I don't know if we want to do this. They were fearful of returning to a place so close to Jerusalem, because the last time they were there, the, uh, they tried the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, tried to take up stones and stone Jesus. Jesus tells them it is safe for now, and they go back, and they journey back, and before they actually get to the place or get to the house, Martha hears that Jesus is coming, and again, I want to... And, and, and what we talk about today, I want to kind of compare Martha and Mary in a sense where I'm going to give Martha some extra points today, okay? And um, we'll, we'll talk about this. Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, if you had been here, and again, we've shared the idea last week about the fact that a lot of times when we have tragedies and difficulties, we think, you know, God, you could have stopped this. You could have prevented this. You could have, you, if you would have been here, if you'd have, you, could have, you could have done something about it. Well, again, knowing Jesus' capabilities as God, he could have healed Lazarus long distance, wouldn't have had to be in his presence to do so. But if you had been here, and so there's a, there's a, there's a faith statement there, but there's also a frustration or maybe even a, you know, it's like, why weren't you here? Why didn't you come? If you had been here, my brother would still be alive. But I know, she says, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. <coughs> Excuse me. Ooh, I need to turn somewhere. Um, God will give you whatever you ask. And, and again, that's a huge statement as well, that God will give you whatever you ask. But then, okay, then ask for Lazarus to come back, and, but she kind of believes you can, but not today. We will all be resurrected someday and will be with you in the future, she believes. Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Then Jesus calls for Mary, and Mary comes, and she echoes the same words as Martha, at least at the beginning. If you had, just, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she falls at Jesus' feet in uncontrollable 
uh, emotional weeping and wailing and says, and she just, she's, she's lost control and she's weeping and crying and holding on to Jesus' feet. Something we did not mention last week, but I, I want you to sort of think about, think about the reaction of these two women. Now, of course, they're different. Um, no two people are the same. And even though they're sisters, they're, they're completely different. We've talked about Mary being the one who sits at the feet of Jesus and listens. And Martha's the one, she's busy about so many things. And, and we, we kind of got on to Martha because she said, Jesus, Jesus, please, do you not see that? I, I'm covered about so many things here. I, I need some help. Would you please tell my sister to help me? Would you please, you know, it's like, you know I need help, and, and she knows it. Would you please? And Jesus says, Martha, relax. Mary's doing what is right. But notice this situation here. Martha comes to Jesus, and I'm sure she's distraught, and, and she's like, oh, if you'd only been here. But Mary is the one who's uncontrollably weeping. Mary is the one who has really nothing to say, except if you had just been here. But Martha goes down through the list, if you had been here. Um, I, I know that God will give you whatever you, whatever you ask for. Um, I, I know that uh, one day we'll all be with you in heaven, and we'll all have a resurrected body, and we'll, be, we'll spend eternity with you. And I know thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Martha was paying attention <laughs> While she was multitasking, she was paying attention. And it is, is it not possible that at this particular moment, you, you could say, well, Mary loved Lazarus more than Martha did, evidently, or maybe Martha has more assurance than Mary does. Martha's looking, at it, and we talk about the fact that when we, when we lose a loved one, when they've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have the assurance that they're with the Lord, and this gives us comfort in the fact that they are with the Lord. They're in a better place Martha knows that. Martha's assured of that. Mary is totally distraught. Maybe Mary wasn't listening as well as we thought. Mary is uncontrollable. And, and, and again, the reaction that then comes from Jesus is his heart is groans and he's, he's, he's in anguish. And it says it's stirred up anguish from within him to the point of he's, he's upset, he's angry about what has taken place. He's angry about the whole thing. Now, I don't think he's angry at Mary, but he's angry at the, the whole picture that's taking place here, and, and, and it could be the unbelief of the people, but he's agitated, and he's angry in his spirit, and he groans, and he's troubled. And the fact is, is that God hates sin and hates death <laughs> maybe more than we do. And again, there's two things that we, we kind of have looked at the last few weeks. Is it possible that the people in hell have more of a desire to witness to their loved ones than we do? Is it possible that God himself hates sin and death more than we do? And he groans, and, and, and then he goes to the tomb, and, and Jesus quietly weeps at the tomb. And there is a difference. In the, in the Greek, there's a difference between Mary's crying and Jesus' crying. Mary has lost it, and and. And, and some of you know this, I, I, you know, and have, and have felt this way. I, I'll try to shorten the story if I can, but when my, when my father passed away, a oh, long time ago now, I was 17, and I was the oldest in my family, so I was going to be, I was going to be strong. I was going to be strong for my mom. And, and when I first heard the news, I was away at college, and I, I, I wept, and I wept, and I wept, and I wept, and I asked God, why, 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 why? 
got a ride home from college, and I determined in my mind that I was not going to cry in my mom's presence. I was going to be strong for her, and, uh, and I was, and, and did fairly well. We had a few days, and then we had the um, uh, time at the funeral home and then the, and the funeral itself, and I thought I was doing pretty well <laughs> until a couple from our church, Nick and Carol Gresh, uh, he would play the guitar and sing, and she would sing with him. If, if it helps you, it's uh, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Um, <laughs> that, that's the picture that I still have in my mind of these two people. And um, they sang the song, Until Then. And I was sitting right near the front over here in our church, and the words of that song hits something. And the floodgates went Crazy. I cried totally, uncontrollably. Uh, literally, you know, if there's such a thing as, as, as catching tears in a bottle, we would have had to have a gallon jug for this, okay? It, would, it was nonstop. I, I was out of control. I could not stop. And, and it was almost like a hypnotic trance because for years, years, and years, anytime somebody would sing the song until then, the floodgates would open, and I just could not control myself. And so I understand this idea of uncontrolled—you you just can't stop, and you just—it's—it's it's just out of your control, and it just—it just keeps going and going. Now, the humorous side of that story, if there is one, a few months later, I was sitting in a church uh, where I was going to college, and there was an evangelist that was speaking, and he finished his message. And uh, the, the invitation to him was, until then. <laughs> and I lost it. I'm sitting about halfway down the aisle, and I'm just bawling like crazy, and I just cannot control it. It's just crazy. And he sees that I'm, you know, I'm under conviction. <laughs> and, uh, and we're going to sing another verse. And I'm like, no, please don't, please don't. Don't. And another verse, and the tears keep coming and keep coming. And finally, he says, you know, bow our heads, and we're going to have it playing silently in the background, and God's dealing with somebody. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know, and I, I, what I should have done was just come forward and get it over with. But, but he literally walked halfway down the aisle and said, young man, is there something I can do for you? Is how can I help you? And I said, stop singing. <laughs> I said, just, it, it will stop if you stop. Just stop playing the song. Stop singing. He goes, oh, okay. And I'm like, I'm like, wow. So anyways, Mary's is uncontrollable. Jesus is, is quietly weeping at the tomb. And the crowd observes, and it says, my, how he loved him. And then they even say, could not this man? He, he spent time with Mary Martha. Didn't they have a special relationship? Could he not have done something? And even the crowd feels that way. Jesus says, take away the stone. It's an unreasonable request. He's been dead four days. Are you serious? What are, what are, what are you trying to prove or what do you want to do? Why are we doing this? Martha, if you believe, you will see. And now we have the reactions to the resurrection of Lazarus. And it starts actually in verse number 41. It's a little bit of a repeat for us, but let's go back. John 11, verse 41, it says, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that thou hast heard me. I, I know that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. 
Jesus prays to his father so that the crowd will see the connection between the father and the son. To them again, to the Jewish people, only God can give life. Only God can do this. And so the connection is that God is the, my father, and he can do this. I am his son. I can do this. And, and I love the fact that it was already a done deal. He says, he, he says I thank thee that thou hast heard me. Okay? Again, Jesus and God talked about this idea of raising Lazarus before this event even took place. Not that they had to, but the fact is, I know that thou hearest me always. I love that phrase as well. I know, uh, in verse number 40, I know that thou hearest me always. Do we know that? When we pray as a child of God, when we pray, can we say, I know that thou hearest me always? And again, this is going to be like we talk about tonight. It's a fact, and we know that's a fact. But sometimes we don't feel that way. Sometimes it feels like God isn't listening. God hasn't heard me. God doesn't know what's going on. I know thou hearest me always. Jesus then cries out to Lazarus, and when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The dead hear the voice of God, and and wherever Lazarus' spirit was, the body responds. He's bound in grave clothes, and his face is covered. And Jesus says, loose him, let him go. Death no longer has a hold on Lazarus. The reaction of the crowd, verse number 45, then many of the, of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Now this is kind of interesting to me again. Uh, now, and, and maybe I'm making more of it than I should, but then many of the Jews which came to Mary, did they not come to Mary and Martha both? Did they not come to the home of Lazarus? But Mary is singled out here. They came to especially comfort Mary. Uh, And and it appeared, and and from what we've seen so far, it appeared that Mary needed more comfort than Martha did. Martha seems to be handling this better. Even when, when she talks to Jesus, Mary can't even talk to Jesus. She has fallen apart emotionally. And, and these people are here to comfort her and to give her encouragement. And, to, and they stay. This is four days. This isn't like right after the event happened. Four days have passed and she's still so distraught. And these people choose to stay to be with her. It says, many of the Jews which came to Mary and seen the things which Jesus did believe in them. It's, it's one of those things, aren't you glad we stayed? You know, it's one of those things where you have a husband and wife and he's like, you know, honey, we need to go. No, Mary needs me. No, we need to go. Mary needs me. Now we resurrect Lazarus. Glad we stayed. (laughs) Glad we stayed. These that are closest to Mary and Martha, the resurrection of Lazarus, it's not a trick. It's not a preconceived plan. These friends, these people that are going to be the believers, we buried him. He's been dead four days. He's not in a coma. This is not a made-for-TV event. It's like, oh, gather together. We're going to raise Lazarus. And this is, it just happened. It just took place. It was real. Many of the Jews, verse 45, that came to see Mary believed on him. Verse 46, but, and just the insertion of that word means that we're changing gears. We're changing direction. It's opposite, Okay. It's opposite. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. The but indicates the fact that they did not believe. 
Okay? Many believed, but there were some that did not. And again, I've shared with you that I, I, I see this as almost an impossibility. How could you not? Unless your heart is so hardened to the things. Unless they were spies sent there in the first place. I, I don't know. Uh, Jesus' friend is sick. Uh, hey, Pharisees, why don't you guys go check out things down there and see if Jesus shows up? Keep us informed of what's going on. I don't know. Uh, and why did they come back? Some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them the things which, why? Uh, you know, you'd say, well, to rub it in their faces. Hey, look what Jesus did. Probably not, because again, the word but means this is something different. They really didn't believe. To stir up more trouble, maybe. To express their concern over what's going on, maybe. Looking for answers, maybe. They agreed with the Pharisees that this has to be stopped or, 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 or things are getting out of hand. To what intent did they come? And they told the Pharisees. And so we have the reaction. We don't really get, at this particular point, the reaction of Mary and Martha. We're going we're gonna to assume that that's thankfulness and jubilation and all the rest. And you would, you would assume that these two sisters would run and help, help unwrap Lazarus and, and, and hug him and so forth. We would assume all that. It's not written. It's not given. But the crowd, it, many believe. And, and some ran and told the Pharisees, Listen to the reaction of the Pharisees, verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees, they, they gathered a group or a council together and said, what are we going to do? <laughs> For this man doeth many miracles. I, I love these next verses because you, you, can, you can glean a lot in regards to attitude and, and even the fact that some of these Pharisees themselves were sheep and not people of, of, of thought or insight. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? <laughs> if... if, if if we let him alone, if we don't do something, all men are going to believe on him. They're going to believe that he's the Messiah. And then if that happens, uh, they'll, they'll probably rebel against the Romans, and the Romans will come and take both away our place and our nation. The thoughts of the council, the thoughts of the chief priests and the Pharisees, what are we going to do? Well, the answer would be believe in him. Embrace him. <laughs> or why do you have to do anything? This man is doing helpful and healthful miracles, <coughs> and it's like the equivalent of a hospital. is like, we have a doctor here that every patient he treats gets well. We need to do something. Why do you have to do anything? He's doing good. He's healing people. He's making the lame to walk, the blind to see. Why do you have to do anything? Let him, let him go. He's doing fine. Leave him alone. No, we have to stop him. <laughs> what? We need to do something. If we let him alone, all will believe that he's the Messiah. And that would be bad because, oh, that'd be bad because then, then they'd rebel against Rome and, and they'd make the Messiah king. If he is the Messiah, honest to goodnessly, this is a good thing. By the way, when Jesus comes the second time to rule and reign and become king of the earth, uh, he doesn't have any trouble with the Antichrist and all of his forces, let alone the Romans, <laughs> he wouldn't have any trouble if he really is the honest to goodness king of kings and lord of lords. He's not going to have any trouble, but they don't believe that he is, and they believe that, oh, and here's, here's a key word here. What's going to happen is the Romans are going to come down, and they'll take away both our place and our nation. We'll lose our place. I lose my place lots of time when I'm trying to read, but, but they're talking about we might not be able to 
have the social standing that we have now. Things aren't so bad. Oh, the Romans ruled, but we are, remember, we're Pharisees. We're wealthy. We're looked up to. Man, things might change and we might lose all of that. Much is talked about when we talk about the founding fathers of, of, of the United States and of America. It talks about the sacrifices they made and gave up their lives, their wealth, and their fortune to break from England and to create freedom for all. Uh, they sacrificed lots. These guys are like, we're not willing to sacrifice. We don't want, and I know that we might lose all these things. What is interesting is they did. What they, what they believed in their head is actually did happen. Many years later, approximately 30 years later, the Jewish people followed a false Messiah, or Messiah's plural. Somewhere between 66 and 70 AD, they followed these false Messiahs, and they actually got together and rebelled against the Roman government. They said, we're done. You cannot rule over us anymore. And the Romans sent a general by the name of Titus. <laughs> Titus came down in 70 AD and leveled Jerusalem, leveled the temple, uh, and basically set crosses outside the city, crucified thousands and thousands of men. And it says in that day, that the, the story that's written up about that time, it says that the women and children were made slaves, and slaves could be bought for almost nothing at all because there were so many of them. They did come down and wipe out all of Jerusalem and leveled the city, leveled the temple, so that not one stone was laid upon another. Their fears, like they're following, if you follow a false Messiah, this is what's going to happen. And that's exactly what did happen. Problem is, Jesus happens to be the real thing. But these, the reaction of the leaders is, oh, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. <laughs> reaction of a man by the name of Caiaphas, verse number 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, you are stupid as all get out. That's a paraphrase, by the way. <laughs> you know nothing at all. He said, I've never seen such dumb people on this entire planet. You know nothing at all. Let's talk about Caiaphas for a minute. It says he was high priest that year. Caiaphas is believed to have been a Sadducee. And again, this is very, very important to understand. The Sadducees ruled and controlled the temple. They were interested in wealth and money. They're the ones that Jesus said, you're, you're, you're robbing, you're made my temple. It's, it's, supposed to be a, it's supposed to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. You're cheating people, you're being crooked. Sadducees didn't even believe in life after death. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no angels, there's no miracles. And he's the high priest. And by the way, he's a high priest that was appointed by King Herod. And possibly he was appointed because he had more money to offer the king than anybody else. And so the house and the family of Annas and Caiaphas are going to be the high priests throughout this entire thing, and we're going to see them continue to follow through the crucifixion of Jesus. Caiaphas is the high priest that year, that fateful year, or it could actually be the fact that the Romans, even though the high priest, as far as Israel is concerned, is supposed to be like a Supreme Court justice, you are there for life or till you die or till you really goof up really bad, uh, you are the high priest forever. Uh, till, till death do us part. But the Romans made it just one year. You can only be high priest for one year because they didn't want them to get so much power. And so what they did was in this family of Annas, they, 
uh, they took turns, like three or four of them took turns, you know, for a year at a time. They just kind of rotated around uh, the, same, the same guys over and over again. But a lifetime position was limited to the Romans by one term. Uh, he's probably not in the direct line of Levi or Aaronic priesthood. He was appointed by the king. He's a crafty schemer, blind spiritually. Uh, he's selfish. He's cruel. He's rude. We'll see these other traits come out. And, uh, and no, again, no spiritual beliefs in regards to heaven, hell, and anything of that nature. So he's thinking completely, when he thinks about and what he's about to say, he's thinking completely. He's not thinking spiritually. He's not thinking any way that, oh, he's the Messiah and we should worship him. And, and we're going to have everlasting life. He didn't believe in everlasting life. So he's certainly not going to believe in this, this Messiah either. And so he says, you, you guys are stupid as all get out. He says, one of them named Caiaphas, high priest that same year, said, you know nothing at all. Do you not even consider, do you not even understand the fact that it is absolutely necessary for our survival that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not? Now, this, he wasn't talking about himself or sacrificing himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. He says, he says all right, let's, let's put your things together. Okay, what are we supposed to do? If we leave him alone, everybody's going to believe in him. And if everybody believes that he's the Messiah, then the Romans, okay, fine, fine, fine. Stop, stop. <laughs> There's one thing we just have to do. You need to kill him. That stops it all. We kill him, and there is no Messiah. No more Messiah talk. No more re revolution. No more Romans coming to, to stomp on us. If you want to keep things like they are, we need to kill him. <laughs> this is so obvious. He says, why is this so hard for you to figure out? Now, the fact is that it was hard for them to figure out because, well, the people like him. They feared the people. But Caiaphas actually feared Rome more than he feared the people or more than he feared Jesus. This man has to die. It is expedient. He's got to die. There's no choice. He has to die. As a matter of fact, he has to die now. We like things just as they are now, you know. People go, well, it couldn't get worse. Caiaphas says, yes, it could. We need to kill him, and we need to kill him now. I love verse 52 because it, it's out of context, but John, the writer of the story, inserts his own opinion here. In verse 52, Caiaphas says, we need to kill Jesus to preserve our nation. And John says, well, Caiaphas did not know exactly what he was saying, but he was smarter than he thought. He says, and not for that nation only, but that Jesus should gather together in one, the children of God that were scattered abroad. He says, Caiaphas was more right than he thought. Jesus' death would save countless of people, not just the people of Israel. So John inserts this in here where Caiaphas goes, he has to die for Israel to be, and basically, what are they concerned about? They're concerned about their place. We won't lose our place if Jesus dies. We have to, and so the death sentence was passed and voted upon, verse number 53, from that day forth they took counsel together to put Jesus to death. Well, Thoughts of Jesus and his followers as well. It says, verse number 54, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews. But they went into the country, near to the wilderness, unto a city of Ephraim. And there they continued. He continued with his disciples, continued to teach them, continued to train them, to work with them. 
about 15 miles north of Jerusalem, in proximity, but kind of out of range and out of sight for the ones who want to kill him. But they have an all-points bulletin out for Jesus, verse number 55, and the Jews' Passover was near at hand, and many went out of the country, uh, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And again, the devout Jews had three main feasts. They would try to get to one of those three feasts at least. And again, Jesus would always come to the feast because that's when there would be tons and tons of people in the city that he was able to reach and for them to see him and hear him. He would always go to Jerusalem during the feast days. And so the Passover was near at hand. And then they sought for Jesus. And here's another question, why? And they spoke among themselves as they said, well, what do you think? Will he come? Will he not come to the feast? Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given commandment that if any man know where he was, that they should show it, that they might take him. They sought for Jesus. Some thinking, well, it'd be great to see him again. Do you think he'll come? Others, well, maybe it's an opportunity for us to turn him in. And maybe like Judas, we can get some money for turning him in and telling his whereabouts. Anybody sees or knows where he is, okay? By the way, what will be interesting is when Jesus does come to the Passover, he's right out in the open. And two times during that week, he says, why are you sneaking around? I'm right here. You can find me every day in the temple. This is where I am. This is where I'll be. The negative opportunity to, to take him and the undecided, will he come? Will he not? Will he risk it? Will he not? All these reactions, multitude of reactions we've already seen. The crowd, some believe and some don't. And the Pharisees, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. Caiaphas says, shut up. Are you stupid as all get out? Do you not see this man has to die? He has to die. We have to kill him. We don't have any choice. If we want to keep things the way they are, we have to kill him. And it's like he totally rules out that there's any chance that he really is the Messiah. This man has to die. And now let's go back. John 12 allows us to go back, and it's out of place, out of the timeline. Chronologically, John 12 does not happen immediately. There's, there's stuff between, okay? There's stuff between these events. But it is the very next time Mary has a chance to see Jesus. Mary, when Jesus is teaching, is at the feet of Jesus. When her brother dies, she's at the feet of Jesus, crying and wailing. When she sees him again for the first time, she sees him for the first time after the resurrection of Lazarus. Verse number one of chapter 12. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. Interestingly enough, from other passages in Matthew and Mark, we find that it was not at Mary and Martha's house. Uh, it was at a different house there in Bethany, and maybe to throw the people off so, because they were watching the house, I don't know. We'll study this more a little bit later because it's not, like I said, it's not in our chronological order yet. Martha served, even, it's not her house and she's still serving, Okay. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. And all the women go, that's what men do. They just sit around. This whole Thanksgiving, we do all the work, and they just sit there and eat. All right, how many, uh, this is totally off the subject, but how many, um, I want women to respond only. Um, how many of your, your husbands or uh, one of your male children help clean up after Thanksgiving? 
Okay. <laughs> Never mind. We won't ask the other question. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, I only ask because I was forced to help clean up. So, um, how many men were forced to help clean up? No, I'm sorry. Okay. Anyways, Lazarus is sitting at the table. Martha's serving. Then Mary took a pound of ointment, of spikenard perfume, very costly, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said not because he cared for the poor, but he was a thief. And he had the bag to bear uh, what was put in it. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying, she hath kept this. For the poor you always have with me, but me, you not have, but me you have not always. Much people of the Jews knew Jesus was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Oh, but the chief priest put out a hit on Lazarus as well, that he might put Lazarus to death also. Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on him. Mary did not understand the death of her brother. Did not understand why Jesus wasn't there when he needed to be there. But she seems to be the only one who understands the death of Jesus. She seems to have figured it out. Pound of perfume. We'll talk again more about this later when we study this passage in depth uh, <laughs> a few years from now. Um, but the perfume literally was something that was kept and given to, it was a priceless commodity that would be given to her groom or her significant other when the time came for her to give herself completely to somebody, to some man. This is what she would give. And so she literally is giving herself completely to Jesus, even though she knows he's going to die. Mark chapter 14, verse number 8 says, Jesus says, She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body for the burying. Here it says she anointed his feet. Matthew and Mark both say that anointed head, and it basically came all the way down to his feet. But again, Mary is at the feet of Jesus embracing his feet, wiping his feet with her hair in complete adoration. Love and adoration for her Savior. The reactions, again, the crowd, many believe, some ran and told the Pharisees. The leaders don't know how to react. We don't know what to do. Caiaphas says, I know what to do. And Mary says, I know what to do. Two of them knew exactly what to do. Caiaphas from the bad side says, we, this, guy, this guy has to go. And Mary from the good side says, I need to give him everything I have. I need to commit my whole life, everything I possess, everything I have to him. This is in gratitude, not just for raising Lazarus, but in recognition that this is, he is who he says he is. He is going to die but he is my Savior, he is my Lord. Caiaphas knew what needed to be done, and Mary knew what needed to be done. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. May we have <clears throat> Mary's reaction to who Jesus really is. 
May we recognize him as Lord of Lords, King of Kings. May we, Lord, worship him. May we give everything we have. May we give our all to him. Thank you, Lord, for the, your word. Thank you for the example that is set. We see the wickedness of men's heart. Despite what they see, despite seeing the miraculous, still have hardened hearts toward the truth of God's word and who Jesus is. May we not be amongst the ones that have hard hearts, but maybe be one who have soft and broken hearts as we fall in love with you. We thank you in Jesus' name.